to welcome everyone to today's merger and acquisitions panel focused on the transportation industry. Uh, today, we hope to cover uh, the contemporary issues facing the M&A space, a little bit of glimpse on the competitive landscape, both today and in the future, and hopefully share a few best practices for those that are in, engaged in this area of our industry. Uh, we have a wonderful panel assembled here today, a great deal of experience in the transaction space. Um, as, as I look around the audience, for, first on our panel is Spencer Tenney. Spencer is CEO of the Tenney Group, one of the preeminent transaction firms in the transportation industry. Um, my next panelist is Heidi Schur. Heidi is president of Scudder Law, longtime representatives of motor carriers in this space. And last but not least, my friend, Randy Hooper, uh, partner at KSM, an accounting firm and consulting firm that specializes in this, in this area as well. So we're, we're very fortunate to have all of you here today. Um, I, th I think for the benefit of the audience, while we know each other well, I think it's really important that the audience has a little bit of understanding, not just as to who you are in this space, but, but more particularly, you know, the role that your firm is playing in the transaction, in the diligence space. And so uh, maybe Spencer, if you don't mind leading us off with that discussion, we'll kind of go around the panel from there. Happy to, Dan. And, thank, and thanks for uh, leading us today. Again, Spencer Tenney from the Tenney Group. Tenney Group is a industry specialized M&A advisory firm that focuses exclusively on sell-side representation uh, for trucking logistics companies that usually range from 20 to 300 million in annual revenue. And effectively what we're doing is, is just helping people understand what's happening in the market, help prepare for sale, and then guide them through that process uh, so that they have options uh, as they transition into the next chapter of life. Hello, uh, my name is Heidi, as Dan said, I uh, work at Scudder Law Firm and um, I'm an M&A attorney with, um, that specializes in transportation and logistics. Um, Spencer mentioned that he's a sell side. We do work for buyers and sellers, um, private and public companies, both both on the buy and sell side. And uh, our practice has expanded to cover about every sector uh, in the industry uh, as far as different types of modes of transportation, uh, various logistics companies, and then uh, even into technology companies that focus on the industry. Randy Hooper, so I'm with KSM, uh, a large regional firm based in Indianapolis with a, a large transportation focus. And I'm, I'm a tax partner, so I'm not a pure transactions uh, person, but I spend a lot of my time doing uh, uh, tax assistance with transaction work in uh, the transportation world. And like Heidi, also do both buy and sell side. So help uh, model out um, both for the buyer and the seller what the transaction could look like. Um, that's where I spend my time. And I guess lastly, uh, I'm Dan Cook. I'm a principal and practice leader with True North. Um, we are a, a large transportation and list logistics insurance broker. Um, I spend a, a meaningful portion of my time leading our risk-based diligence team, where we kind of fill a gap in between the other professionals here, uh, looking at enterprise risk uh, across the targets for both strategic and financial buyers. Um, I think as we as we kick off, it, a, a great place to start is just a general discussion around really, really what's driving the M&A activity right now from your seat. 
And this is one, well, I've, I've got a few questions that I might pose more specifically to each of, to, to certain individuals. This is one I'd like for each of you to take a shot at. Um, and, and Spencer, I can start out with you. you. You know, what is it from your seat that's really driving M&A activity today in the transportation industry? And, and perhaps, you know, what's, what's significant about that right now? Well, well, I think there's a number of different things. I, I think I'll get the ball rolling and, and, and my friends here will kind of fill in the gaps for sure. I think it starts with an aging demographic of, of business owners within this space. And I think there's all kinds of different transitioning. Um, it's, it's known fact, largest transformation of wealth in the history of mankind. And we're in the middle of that over the next 10 years, just based on aging baby boomer uh, business owners uh, transferring ownership of their businesses. But you add a driver shortage, you you, dra- you, you add um, the inability to get access to equipment, you got record um, low rates for uh, uh, interest rates uh, for the past several years, even as they're rising right now. There's, there's tremendous amount of pressure around the capacity. So you put all these things in a pot, it just makes the interest for both buyers and sellers to try to get a deal done. And I think that's why we're seeing a surge in M&A activity right now. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, Spencer. I do think um, that the demographics are having a big impact, especially in, I think, in when you think about the, the truckload carriers. I think there are many uh, generations where maybe the, the founder has passed it down one generation, but the next generation doesn't have an interest. But um, over my career, I think we have, this is the highest level of uh, activity in transportation logistics that I've seen. I think the statistics are deals, the number of deals in transportation logistics increased by 30% uh, um, in the last year. And we have seen that continue. You know, everyone that follows the freight market, you know, every, there's predictions about when things will turn and whether it's turned. But right now, we're seeing a lot of deal activities. We're seeing deals in every size, in every sector, in every type, truckload, LTL, last mile, dedicated, warehousing, brokerage, tech, equipment. Um, they And they range in size. We have very small asset deals where even despite record EBITDA, people are selling off of asset values. Everyone knows the value of real estate is up, of tr- equipment is up, uh, the value of a driver continues to increase. Um, large deals like the Knight Swift um, acquisition of uh, AAA Cooper, TFI's acquisition of UPS Freight. Um, in the last year, we've seen equipment leasing companies buying trunk- trucking companies so they can convert the fleet to uh, leased assets since they can't get that capacity. We've seen financial buyers and large infrastructure funds that have never shown interest in the space, uh, you know, come and uh, show interest. And so... Um, Ten, uh, uh, Spencer and the Tenney Group worked on a shipper buying a carrier, uh, many supply chain technology transactions. So um, I think there's a lot of interest and really it's record transaction multiples applied to record earnings. And the question is, you know, when will those turn either on the multiple or the earnings side? And, um, and uh, that may tie closely to when the freight market turns. Hey, Randy, when you answer, the answer in 2020 and perhaps 2021 was, was going to be tax, 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 right? What's the answer today? Yeah, and I, I mean, I would agree with Heidi. So much of it is driven by, by record uh, 
really record profits. It's been such a boon for the last 18 months. So excess capital leads to uh, more buyers. And now I'm in the tax world, so was so focused on PPP. At one point, the PPP, I think, really was uh, driving a lot of deals, but I think it still can't be understated. Um, you, you start off two years ago when, when COVID hit, people getting the, a, a few million dollars and then that leading into a, an era of their strongest 18 months ever. And, and now they're looking to do something with those dollars. And so we have a lot of first time buyers. And so you couple that with Spencer's point about the used equipment market. And it all kind of culminated into this perfect storm of a lot of new buyers with a lot of capital wanting to put it to work. And, um, and it, it created this ridiculous M&A market that we're, we're living through. And definitely some of that was um, spurred to, uh, through 1231 of 21 to try to beat taxes or tax increases that ultimately never happened. But now it's just that deal flow just hasn't really slowed down because of all the other elements we've spoken about. So we've talked a little about, you know, new buyers and various types of buyers and and clearly, you know, activity is is really at a frenzy right now. So thinking about best practices and the transactions that you've been involved in, what do you see buyers using as tools or techniques or levers and maybe we'll we'll do we'll round table this one again in the same order we did the last. Buyers using his tools, techniques, you know, uh, in order to get deals done right now. Well, I'll jump in there. I, I think that there's definitely some conscious efforts to differentiate because at any given transaction there could be multiple buyers, and it's you know, and a buyer's trying to compete in places besides just adding money into the pot. So how can they do that? Um, I mean, I, I think there's definitely going to be some component of that just in terms of how businesses are trading right now. But some of the practices that I've seen that I, that I think are particularly effective is one is, is, is providing is, is one is showing restraint in terms of the initial information request to kind of get in the game and to get an indication of interest. I think that develops trust and, and helps get people to the front of the line. And then the other part of that is providing high certainty of close as far as where's the funding going to come from? What's the process going to look like? Because especially when you're talking to folks that match the description that I talked about and Heidi mentioned as far as, hey, like we, we, we've got great money. Uh, yes, we, we want the most that we can. But what we really don't want is to be drawn out in a long, redundant process. So what can you communicate early on that's going to allow you to present an experience for us as we exit that is highly favorable, highly certain? I think those two things in terms of showing restraint, high certainty of close, those are a couple of approaches that are really being a part of buyers that are actually getting deals done right now. So it sounds like buying a trucking company is a lot like buying a house today. It's not that different. <laughs> uh, you better be pre-qualified. You, 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 you take what you get. You got to get to the front of the line. Yeah. You know, and it's funny. I, and I think the other part of that is just being very intentional about who your point person is as a buyer. Because, you know, some people, they may have a, a great investment thesis. They have a great post-transaction strategy. They're just not that likable. So I think it's really important to kind of lead with someone that is a really strong ambassador for your brand because um, people want to do business with people they like. And I think the buyers that really understand that are really doing well right now. So Heidi, from the legal perspective, getting deals done? Yeah, 
I think they, first of all, deal certainty, I think is real important. I think there's a lot of sellers that would take maybe a little bit of less cash for better deal certainty. Um, but I have seen um, buyers be more assertive in looking out for the sellers. So for instance, years ago, you would never see uh, a buyer come out and propose that I'm going to do, yes, um, you know, I, I'm going to do a stock deal, but I need this asset treatment. Um, and so I'm going to go ahead and volunteer that I'm going to give you the gross up on the additional taxes. Um, that the buyer comes out and says, hey, I will tell you that I will propose as a first draft of a purchase agreement, a middle of the road deal. So we're not going back and forth on every deal. I will propose in my first draft that you will have a true deductible so that I'm not going to come back and nickel and dime you, especially if you're the person that's going to stay around and, and run my business. And so, you know, I think that, um, you know, deals are competitive. And, and as, as Spencer said, the buyers want to be recognized uh, for somebody that's going to be a good partner down the road. And I, I've seen more proactive um, effort in getting out and saying, hey, these are what we're going to do that's for your benefit as well. Yeah, and I, I would just add to that. Um, I think it's helpful helpful for buyers to be aware of their strengths compared to the other uh, people who are bidding. So, um, for instance, an, an ESOP uh, potential buyer, you know, maybe they know they're more inclined to potentially do a stock deal um, uh, because of the tax ramifications there. And so, just being aware of that. But just like Heidi said, um, I have seen a lot more people almost initially willing to offer up that gross up that she just, just discussed, knowing they may be bidding against someone else who's using that as a tool. And, and I think a lot of it does come down to uh, Spencer's point of um, likability of, of the buyer. And so if you're a, a well-known strategic um, that has, you know, maybe you're involved with ATA and you have a, a good reputation, if you're going up against a, a financial buyer, a lot of time there's kind of an intrinsic trust with someone who's well known in the industry and so kind of using that to your benefit to say hey i've been here uh, i know how to run a trucking company etc i think goes a long way too so so are there some i don't know thinking about deal structure are there some characteristics or themes that we've seen in 2022 maybe unique to deal structure and, and heidi maybe i start with you on this yeah, and probably Randy will have some thoughts on this, but I mean, we rarely, um, especially if the deal size is over 50 million, we rarely see asset deals anymore. When I first started out, um, we were doing asset deals all the time. I mean, you know, there were there were companies like Smithway that was acquiring a company every quarter on an asset deal basis. It still happens, but it's it's rare. So more stock deals because of the ease of transition, no issues with operating authority. Many companies want to let those, the, the, the target continue to operate. And if you do a stock deal, there's no issues with that. Fewer consents with customers. You don't have to new onboard drivers and get them to sign new documentation if they're an owner operator. So there's just a lot fewer transition issues. So I see more stock deals and then also um, just more, um, F reorgs in 338 H10 so that they get the benefit of the step up in the value of the assets, particularly if it's a trucking company. It's those are big dollars. I don't know if you've, you what you, what you think about that, Randy. That, that's exactly the same answer. Um, years ago, it would be uh, predominantly uh, a lot of asset deals, 
and I would say asset deals followed by maybe 338s, which is the, the stock deal that's treated as an asset deal. In the last two years, there's been a trend for a variety of reasons to do more F reorgs. Um, we, we talked about uh, more financial buyers or more uh, just new first time buyers. And so that just lends itself to do more equity deals because they're not set up that with an MC number or a, a brokerage license, et cetera. So they really need those intangibles. And so they don't really have the option of doing a pure asset deal in a lot of cases. Um, but also some financial buyers might be set up as an, as an LLC, which doesn't allow them to buy stock. So they have to do an F reorg in some instances. And then I think there, are, this is more of a legal question, but I think some people um, believe that the F reorg gives a little bit of protection if you against a maybe potential blown S election, et cetera. So it's a kind of an attractive deal um, um, and it gives you a little more protection in, in some of those instances. One other trend, I, I'm sure Spencer will have an opinion too, is it felt like in COVID, um, there was a really long tail on a lot of these deals because of the amount of risk. And so the, the earnouts associated with the deal, I feel like were longer than maybe ever before. And I've seen that really yo-yo back and forth. And so because of all the factors we talked about previously with deals being competitive, we went from almost record earnouts or um, tails on deals to some, a lot of deals not having them at all. And so that's one trend that I've, I've noticed as well to get your take on that, Spencer. No, we've definitely seen um, some some movement around that, um, both in terms of term, but also back to the original comment about just trying to make a deal attractive, which we've just seen in very simplistic earnout formulas that are very easy to measure. And I think that the design is there's great angst around earnouts for sellers, and so the, to, to the degree that they can have control, that they believe that it's attainable, um, it can be a really good carrot. Uh, to expand the total consideration of a deal. So I think that's a, a major trend uh, that the, the term of those earnouts have, have shrunk. I think they're more attainable. I think that they're more simplistic. I think those are some of the characteristics that we've seen to try to be more competitive to get deals done. The other part of it is just higher concentration of cash, specifically for smaller deals on the asset side, and because they're worth more. And, and the buyers, because they can borrow more against those assets, they can deliver more cash at closing to the seller without taking really any more risk or exposure. So that's kind of been a unique characteristic over the last six to 12 months as this crazy equipment environment. And what's important to note about that, it's like, that's not a permanent feature. I feel like as that normalizes, I think it will, it's not going to be a reduction in value. It's just going to be a reduction in the way that the deal uh, or just a, a return to normalcy a normalization of, of how deals would normally be structured uh, based on what the assets are available in the deal. So really interesting. I mean, a lot of good things going on. I, I, I know one of our goals in, when we have these conversations is try to simplify some of what is a pretty complex area. Um, Heidi, you brought it up, and then Andy, Randy, you spoke to Efreorg and, and 338s, and, and I know that we'll have a number of sophisticated buyers that this video will get in front of, but, but there'll also be a lot of sellers who are brand new to all of this. So if you would, in, in a minute or less, explain what an F reorg, a 338 is, maybe just simplify that for the group. I think there'd be value there. Yeah, I can start. I mean, in the most simple terms, uh, a 338 deal is, is indeed a stock deal. But if you think about a buyer and a seller are always kind of at odds here because um, a seller always wants to sell, sell their stock because you get capital gain treatment. 
and a buyer always wants to buy assets because you get to depreciate that and get an ordinary deduction immediately. So the 338, it kind of blends a little bit of that. You get the benefit of buying uh, the intangibles, the MC number, et cetera. So you do a stock deal, but you get the benefit as the buyer of stepping up the assets and you get to depreciate those. So it's treated as an asset deal. So it's simply just an election. Um, I mean, it will be throughout the transaction document, but it's an election made by both buyer and seller. And then an F reorg without getting uh, two in the weeds, it actually works fairly similarly. There's a restructure that occurs before a deal and that drops the, the selling entity down into a single member LLC. And then it allows um, other LLCs or whoever it may be to buy that, the equity of the LLC. And, and that works the same way because whenever you buy an LLC, you also get a step up in the assets. So without getting too tax nerdy, uh, that's my simple explanation. Heidi, you got anything you want to do with that? Or no, that was perfect. Okay. <laughs> if, you're, if, you're a, if you're a seller, the simple way to think about it is you want to sell stock for capital gains. The buyer wants to have you know, a step up in the value of the assets, and it's trying to accomplish both of those objectives. And the meeting in the middle is what are we going to do about these additional taxes? And that when that's when the tax gross up discussion comes in. Great. And, th and this is a nice segue into a discussion really around valuations. We talked about, you know, record earnings and driving valuations, but, but Spencer, where do you see valuations trending today and probably equally important? You know, what are some common misunderstandings in the, in the transportation industry around valuation? I think some of the most common misunderstandings are just just the different set of values that would be available to an asset heavy versus an asset light business model. And so, um, and the other part of it is just understanding what is the multiple or the multiplier being applied to. So, um, so I think those are, those are some sources of confusion. I think in general that the, the trends, I mean, you can go back probably seven years where we've, um, for asset light specifically, you've seen trend upward in, in terms of valuation, the multiples that, that companies are trading for. Asset heavy has been a, a little bit um, uh, less uh, consistent in that. But in general, you know, right now we're, we're, we're looking at um, 10 year highs as far as valuations. I think that we're going to see that level out. We won't see necessarily dip, but we, we still have relatively record low interest rates. That's going to continue to go up. And so I think what we're seeing is this is just some sensitivity around that. And I think that's kind of also affecting some of this M&A surge. It's just buyers and sellers are recognizing that, hey, we've got, we've got a wonderful tax environment. We've got really great interest rates. It makes sense to try to get these deals done while the instruments to get them done are, are you know, as favorable as possible. So I, I do think moving forward, there, there will be a, a leveling off, but if we put that in like in a, in a, in a, in a 10 year lens, it's still going to be extremely favorable to sellers right now. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I think there could be an opposite way trend on the earnout. So Spencer and Randy talked about how there is, you know, there, there's an effort by buyers to get more cash at closing and less earnout and deferred payments. I think it's possible as we, as the market turns, which it will, you know, everyone knows how the freight market moves. There may be, it may be going back to more earnouts to bridge the gap on valuation to say, okay, 
you have had, you want to use the trailing 12 months, which, you know, has just a, you know, been at a hockey stick increase and you want to use these multiples. However, you know, we see things turning, your turn downs are much less or your volume through your brokerage business is much less. Okay. I'm willing to give you the benefit of historical results and current multiples, but I will want more of it in an earn up. I don't know if that will happen, but that may be a logical conclusion to try to figure out, you know, protecting about when the, the freight market may turn. Randy, anything to add here? Yeah, I would just say um, kind of piggybacking off of, of Spencer's comment with the asset light. Um, the other thing is very niche carriers. So, you know, maybe a, a bulk uh, hauler or if you have a, a specified uh, reefer uh, division, you know, those carry larger multiples typically. And so um, that's that's also a misconception. Sometimes uh, these deals get publicized that have something very niche with warehousing, et cetera, and they just throw a multiple out there and people think that's my multiple. And, and it's a lot more complicated than that, clearly. And so that that's one question we get asked a lot because some multiple will get publicized and it's not doesn't really apply to a lot of the folks we work with. And then as far as valuation trends go, um, you know, it's I, maybe there might be kind of a bifurcation between really small carriers and a little bit upstream. So, so much as of that has been dependent on just pure equipment values. And so um, I feel like some of that fades away the larger the deal. And so if you're looking at just what's the value of the equipment on, on a smaller fleet, you know, maybe that will still hold true, but it's really increased. It's kind of naturally just increased the multiple people are getting. Uh, because the equipment is so high on, on larger deals. I feel like it's still, um, while the increase in equipment values definitely still matter, um, the more savvy buyers still look at it as valuing a cash flow stream. And like Heidi said, are you looking at the hockey stick? Are you trying to project out over the next 12 months, which is what you should be doing. And you're looking more at that financial trend as opposed to just purely looking at the value of the fleet. Makes sense. I think here I've got a, maybe I'll pose a question uh, to each of you and, and Randy, I, if maybe you're up, you're up first. I, um, in the diligence process, often include, an often included step is a quality of earnings report. Um, would you take a minute maybe and explain what's included in a quality of earnings report, who uses that report and for what purposes? Um, and generally, how long does does that engagement take to complete that process? Yeah, sure. So um, really a quality of earnings um, in its most simple term is is what it is. It's, it's an analysis of the earnings and making sure that the earnings that are represented to the, the buyer um, are what they are and, and you're not packing other things that should be carved out. And so within a Q of E is what we call them, quality of earnings report. You'll have the analysis of earnings. You'll have uh, normalized networking capital. You'll have historical balance sheet and P&L flux, and then um, other important trends. So if you have um, customer concentration or key uh, customer or vendor trends, so if you just exploded with one big contract, uh, you know obviously a, a buyer is going to want to know that you have a, a concentration there that had this big blip that's throwing off your numbers. So they can properly weight that when they're doing the, the valuation or the bidding process. So I mean, that's the Q of E kind of in a nutshell, and it has all other components that try to identify risk items. The, 
the time period, it kind of runs, as you might imagine, based on size of the deal. I'd say anywhere from 30 days to 60 days is kind of the sweet spot. And, and everything is obviously very time sensitive. So we try to get those done within that time period. Um, as far as end users, in my experience, it's almost always the buyer. Um, well, you know, buy side or sell side, but the buyer is really the person looking at this. And then depending on how the deal is financed or if you have limited partners or other investors, they often would be interested in getting the quality of earnings report. Um, the only other, I guess, potential end user, if there's reference and warranties, the, the QV might get this, uh, dispersed to them as well. All right. I, I think maybe I'll flip over to Heidi here with the next question. I, you know, thinking more broadly around due diligence, um, you know, out of the due diligence process, we often see a number of, of adjustments that are going to be made in transaction deals. Would you mind talking about, you know, two or three of the really common adjustments to the transaction that you see come out of diligence and, and maybe focus a little bit on the things we find that tend to, that can blow up a deal. Yeah. Yeah. And some of, some of the time there's some overlap in that as well, but, um, I think in the industry, the insurance reserves is probably the most common just because there's unfortunately so much litigation, um, particularly for carriers, but even, you know, even there's some contingent exposure for brokers. And so you'll oftentimes, you know, have a specialist like, you know, dance firm come in and look at those. And so that is a very important area of diligence. Um, uh, uh, Oftentimes, also, there's things around uh, accruals for um, uh, benefits and uh, vacation and uh, those types of things. Um, looking back at some of the things that we've had come up in recent deals, um, a cybersecurity incident, uh, that will probably continue to increase. We've seen increasing focus on that in diligence. Uh, there is now pretty good um uh, data around the prevalence of specific cyber risk representations in uh, the purchase agreement and um, and also coverage under rep and warranty. Um, accident claims will always be, you know, um, you know, a transaction um, we're working on with Randy that had a, a really significant um, accident. So that will always, uh, you know, be something that uh, look for. I mean, years ago, um, you know, there was lots of focus on owner-operators and, and OIDA suits <laughs> stopped one deal. And then now it's kind of gone to some of these class actions you see around um, uh, owner-operator classification um, issues. And so those things, safety, uh, obviously, oh, very, very important when people are diligencing and find you get in there since the CSA scores aren't all public anymore. You get in there and you find that there are lots of alerts. So um, insurance, safety, uh, obviously, if they're really upside down on their equipment, um, that doesn't happen much in this equipment market, but it has at times. So those are a few things that we, we frequently see. Make, makes sense. Uh, Spencer, I'd throw this one your way. Uh, you know, if so a lot of our conversation has, has been around what's happening today in transactions and but, but if I'm a, a, a potential seller, if I'm a company thinking about positioning my organization for sale in two or three years from now, you know, what are some of the, the planning tips? What are the, some of the things that I need to be thinking about or preparing, you know, with regard to, say, finan financial reporting or tax planning? 
you know, what, what should a future seller be doing to prepare? There's a couple things that are particularly critical. One, one is just getting your financial house in order. It's been my experience that, you know, people that are serious about acquisitions, um, they're going to size somebody up pretty quick just based on both the speed and the accuracy of their financial reporting. Uh, just because it's, there's too many options right now in the market for companies that can satisfy those things when, in, in a day. So like it's kind of a considered a dry run. Like you want to, you want to prepare your company so that you can satisfy that first box that a buyer is going to need to check so that you can kind of get to the next round to begin to get serious consideration about what your business may be worth. And so um, I, I say that's number one. And number two is just systematically reducing dependence on the owner. And, and I think that there's some really large, great companies that when it gets down to it and the buyer starts getting their, you know, getting access to it, they realize that, you know, we have an entire, we have a really experienced management team, but almost none of them have any authority to do anything uh, without someone else's buy on and, and, and doing something. So I, I think that the challenge is what can you be doing to elevate leadership, to delegate and uh, to charge them with certain responsibilities to grow the value of the business so that when inevitably there's a buyer and they, they're interviewing your management team, depending on the size of the business, it's very clear that this business will not only survive, but thrive in the owner's absence. I think those are, those are the types of things where you start seeing, you know, when people are, are looking in their value and they, they start like, you know, we know clearly this business is, is they're, they're in command of their financial reporting. They're good managers of the business, good stewards. And we have a real management team that can drive the business forward without us trying to reinvent the wheel. And I think if, when you can satisfy those things, that's when you start attracting different ranges of multiples from a value standpoint. So that's my great encouragement to folks that are kind of beginning to think about that. That is great. That is great advice. And this is probably for a lot of our audience, a really important topic. Heidi, would you, would you add anything? There? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, uh, I agree with everything Spencer said. I think really, um, preparing yourself. There's so many things in your business that it's hard to control, but you can control your preparation for a transaction. And just as Spencer says, you want to like the buyer, you want to be liked as a seller. And a really good resource, all four of us are very active in the ATA's uh, National Accounting and Finance Council. And there is an M&A toolkit that I would encourage, uh, particularly sellers, their uh, in-house counsel, their outside counsel, their tax advisors. It has a number of things that will be helpful for you. Due diligence checklist, um, a summary of what the difference is between an asset and a stock deal, a form LOI, a form confidentiality agreement, that those are available for members to use. And so the reach out, those are really good resources. The ATA will be able to uh, put you in contact with where you can get those, but um, that will help in your preparation and, uh, increase the certainty of getting the deal closed, which is, is very important as, as we all noted. Randy, anything to add there? I think they did a great job. Um, the way I, I always view it is uh, just removing any potential risk or perceived risk. And so you can't always uh, remove pending uh, litigation, but you can have clean financials so that they don't look sloppy, which is a perceived risk to a buyer you can avoid taking risky tax positions. You can make sure that you're filing in appropriate jurisdictions. So just making sure that you've eliminated what a buyer would perceive as risk 
um, you know, one, it's very simple, but uh, so specific. We see uh, blown S elections blow up deals. And so making sure that you kind of have that button down with your CPA, um, and that's a, that's a very easy, simple thing. So just eliminating uh, potential risk factors is the only thing I'd add. Yeah, and Randy, that's that was goes right to my next question is, what are some of the, just thinking back to deals that you've been involved in recently, what are some of the missteps that come along in the sale process that business owners can avoid? And that's definitely one. Um, and I would say I have seen deals. So it all comes back to planning. And I have seen deals get embarrassingly far before a buyer or in most cases, a seller realizes, oh, wait, this is not going to end up the way I think it's going to end up. And they pull they pull the ripcord 75 uh, percent in instead of 5 percent in because they didn't do enough upfront planning. And so I know it's a very kind of broad answer. I'd say, you know, that's that's probably the the number one thing is is just having the upfront planning to know where you're going to end up. Um, that I can't speak enough uh, to the importance of that. Spencer, anything to add there? I think there's some very um, a good example is the owner that is either um, so worried about disrupting the current um, management team about pulling certain reports like this is going to tip everybody off and then I'm going to have a rumor mill that everybody's going to think we're for sale. I, I think that people that have done this the best, they kind of get out in front of that by kind of having like just scheduled fire drills like, hey, we're going to pull these documents because that's what we do. We're interested in always being ready to exit because the business is always for sale. And then you kind of normalize that environment and you start pulling these documents on a, on a fairly regular basis. Number one, you're conditioning your people to, to really wow when it matters. But number two, like you're creating these efficiencies that, uh, to Randy's point, like when people aren't accustomed to pulling this data, they don't know how to do it. Um, owners aren't asking them to do it or they're just asking them to piecemeal it to try to keep something secretive, you know, it is, it, it, it ultimately alienates buyers from the process and, and, and waste a lot of time. So I think to the degree that you can normalize that within your organization so that it's just this ongoing thing, you're not really ever tipping anybody off, but you're also training, you're educating your people to understand how to build a valuable business. And I think what's good about that is that whether you sell or not, you're, you're doing the types of things that are going to allow you to own and operate a better business. And so, you know, the four of us have been in and around this space. I think, shoot, we probably average over 25 years each in this business. And so for us, being highly confidential, protecting uh, information, I mean, it, it's second nature. But, but Heidi, let me ask you this. For, for a seller, um, thinking about non-disclosure and confidentiality agreements, I, how does a company ensure protection of their, you know, unique competitive advantages while simultaneously seeking to understand, you know, the seriousness of a potential buyer? Yeah, you, you need to get a confidentiality in place very early in the process. And um, there are additional things you can do. For instance, the teaser that the bank um, goes out with or you go out with whatever your process is needs to be, you know, clear that it's not your company. And, um, and so, you know, make sure that that is, uh, doesn't identify your headquarters or uh, give any other information. Also, as the process goes along, you can stage. So for instance, you can redact your customer contracts 
your customer or customer revenue listing can be by customer A, B, and C. In larger deals, we have what's called a clean room where only certain non-operational people can have access to that. And so um, I think it's always an area of apprehension for sellers, but I think they should understand that with the right processes, you can protect your information um, by making sure you follow the normal customary processes of a confidentiality agreement, redacted, working with the, the banker to make sure that it's the disclosure is timed when you want, and uh, you should be comfortable that uh, you're, you, you have a right to protect your confidential information contractually against the, the people that may be looking at it. You, you mentioned teasers. This, this wasn't really on my list of things to discuss, but you know, I, there's a lot of teasers that come across my desk throughout the course of any given month. And, and there's always a contest to figure out who it is. And, uh, you know, less, it kind of goes from my seat um, to working with specialists in the transportation industry. Um, when I see teasers from people that are uh, investment banks that don't deal in this space every day, it's almost like they're trying to give you a clue through how they name the, the deal or whatever. And, and too often, I can figure out who it is. Um, Spencer, why don't you talk about how, how you name the, 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 how you develop a teaser that protects that confidentiality? No, I think it's funny that you brought up the, well, the two things. One, it's kind of a joke. Every once in a while, we'll get a teaser from an outside firm that doesn't understand this industry. And we have a game to see how fast my team can figure out who it is. <laughs> so, 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 um, not, in the deal is this, I, I think that the people that when we're running a process, um, and this is really important for our clients to know is to understand the role of what this is designed to do. It's designed to create intrigue. And there should be a high collaboration on what information this one pager says and what it doesn't say. And so when we're working with our clients, we're trying to ask like, hey, can, if, if we can narrow this down to half a dozen people, it's a major problem. So like we have to work together and with the, with the owner, like no one knows their business better than them and how their pet competitors would look at this. But together that we can craft the right balance between creating intrigue, but also not letting any centers of influence or anybody else be able to narrow it down to that small of a list because that's not helpful. So usually once we kind of have that piece, then if someone has some interest, then we go to what Heidi was discussing about kind of having access to that next level of information. And I think this is where people, um, you know, some inexperienced buyers and inexperienced sellers, this is where they kind of have a little bit of a misstep. Just because you sign a confidentiality agreement doesn't mean that you have access to anything you want with, with that business. It's, you, you know, you're, you're now have access to an incremental release of information based on having aligned goals and interest and satisfying those things. So really it's very easy for us. We kind of have initial, like some very limited release of information. Um, the teaser should basically provide an investment thesis. And if you provided that to a very limited list, then you should be able to get to a conversation about a range of offers pretty quickly. Uh, subject to due diligence. And I think that's what we're trying to create from that sequence is, you know, approved pre-marketing material that's generic in nature, then assign a confidentiality agreement, then still limited information, then a non-binding range, uh, a proposal for a non-binding range of um, value. And then, in that, then at that point, we've kind of satisfied that, hey, we can dig in here quite a bit more and kind of find out what this thing can really do. And so um, 
when we go through that sequence, uh, number one, it protects sellers, but it also protects the time and the energies of the buyer for not getting too deep into something that you're not even the same universe on the money. And I think that's the main kind of practice that we want to, for both parties to try to embrace. So let's expand on that. I, 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 I love your focused, limited list, qualified buyer type type approach, but many of the teasers get blasted out to the market and, and not all transactions are managed that way. So what can the parties do? And, and uh, maybe Randy, you take this first, but it's probably good for everyone. But to ensure there's a meeting of the minds on the material terms before either side invests a lot of time and resources into the transaction. Yeah, I mean, really, for this part of the transaction, um, this is this is where I pretty much immediately loop in Spencer's team because so much of it's going to depend on uh, how you're going to market. And so, you know, we it's our job to help set expectations on whatever side we're representing. But then, but then to make sure you're going to market appropriately, um, really needs to be a conversation with. Uh, the banker or or the the team that's that's helping that process, and so um, I'm I'm not really driving that part of the deal a lot of the times, but but definitely will will give my two cents, but really kind of uh, rely on Spencer's team in a lot of cases for that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that we just had a conversation with this with a um, you know somebody that's that's bought a lot of deals, and they were looking at a couple of our transactions, and they were kind of hung up on you know next steps. In general, they're interested about what to do next. So our deal was like, hey, there's you you understand the trucking industry. You know what these people are doing. You've you've seen the numbers on on a, a one pager, and you've had access to some limited information. Let's just find out if we can if if we're in the, in the ballpark on the economics of the deal. And I asked him, you know, like, what do you typically use as a proposal? Like, well, we don't really have anything. Well, we provide them with a template that check the major boxes that the typical seller wants to address. They want to know about the total value. They want to know about the likely characteristics of the deal structure without boxing themselves in. And they want to know about what what plans might they have for the seller post-transaction from a support standpoint. Um, and, and then what are you going to do with the business? What, what I mean, what do you, what, you know, are you going to be folding it into another operation and, and eliminating key management positions? They just kind of want to have a general idea about what is your vision for the business. And it's been my experience. It, they don't even have to be super precise but just addressing those things is enough to signal to the seller, like, hey, I, I kind of like the way this feels. And it kind of satisfies for both parties that this is a good use of time and energy and resources. And so, and if you can't, it's the fastest way to to next, get on to the next thing that is better. So I think just using a very elementary type template that helps buyers check the boxes that buyers that I mean that our clients need to know about early on. It's just been a really effective tool to help um, protect time, but also help buyers get deals done. Great advice. So as we move to the towards the close of our discussion, Heidi, uh, talk about closing the transaction. Uh, you know, I know this is a moving target, but from the time a letter of intent is signed, what do you see in today to be the duration? You know, how much time is is transpiring before we actually get to closing? So from signing the LOI to closing. I would say unless there are uh, significant financing contingencies or it's a large enough deal to have regulatory approvals like uh, antitrust approvals, I think most deals can get done in 60 to 90 days. Now, that doesn't take into account all of these months you're working with Spencer's group 
and others to get ready. But once you sign that, um, and I think you as a seller should push the buyer to say, hey, hey, do you, you know, do you have counsel engaged? Do they have a form of agreement? What is their time frame for getting it? Sometimes you see in LOIs that, you know, we're signing it on day one, and I will have a first draft of the purchase agreement on day seven. And, you know, we'll have the first drafts of the disclosure schedules on, on day 20. And, and so, um, you know, if the timeline is really important to you, so for instance, many times people are trying to get uh, a deal closed before uh, an insurance renewal or something that, you know, is material in their business. So build that into your timeline. But typically, um, you know, 60 to 90 days uh, is what we see. It Very few uh, can do quick, sooner than that. And there's a few large ones that maybe take a little bit more or if there's a deal complication that, that comes up. So just a couple more questions for the group. And, and, and this may be a, a, a bit redundant from some of the earlier answers, but um, Spencer, maybe you go first. From, from your perspective, you know, what are some of the secret, secrets to success in, in getting an M&A deal to closure? I think a lot of it is just avoiding unforced errors. And, and the, the encouragement for, the, for sellers is that they can control a good bit of this. Um, there's a tendency for business owners, founders, it's the largest financial transaction of a lifetime, and you need to approach it with that level of humility. And, um, and so the best, the, the things that I think that you can do to make sure that it gets to the finish line is immediately before we go to market, we want our clients to understand the likely range of offers and deal structures that are going to be made available to them. So they can have some time to digest that. The very next thing that you do is you go to a tax specialist like Randy and you find out what's going to happen in terms of what your life going to look like net tax from that. Because when a real offer comes, we want you to be able to respond with confidence that you've already had those conversations and you've had time to digest those conversations. You will be a much more effective um, performer because that's what this is in, in that moment when you need to be steady and you need to be decisive. And the other thing is when we get late into the game and we're ready to um, you know, we're, we're, we're having a meeting of, the mind on, meeting of the minds on the economics. You need to pull in a transaction attorney like Heidi at that point, um, it, you know, pre-signing the LOI because there's a number of different things that we want to make sure that we get buttoned down the right way before we go through due diligence and get to the definitive purchase agreement because you can't really retrade those things once you kind of go down that path. So again, these are just very simple things that you have control of that you can execute that have tremendous influence on what you actually experience both during and after the sale process. So that's my encouragement. Just focus on these key two things. I mean, those are very easy to manage, but just you take care of those, then you're going to have a, a pretty good experience. Heidi, your thoughts? I think on both sides, um, the highest indicator of success, I think, comes from preparation. So on the sell side, having your team together, having your documents in order, having your tax planning and estate planning in order allows you to say, I have all these things in order. Um, and so, because you're going to spend a lot of your time responding to things that come out that, that's requesting that you really don't want to be planning once you've signed your LOI, you want to be planning in advance. Also from the buy side, it's, it's preparation. So you can tell the seller, Hey, I have my legal counsel. They know, you know, forms I want to use. I've told them to use middle of the road terms. I have my Q of E person that they've committed to get a Q of E to me within 30 days. I have my insurance uh, 
you know, team at True North that's going to look at your insurance. Um, and so that they can have, comp- I don't have financing, or if I do have financing, I have these indications of interest. And so by both sides preparing, it resets expectations and give comfort, more certainty to say, okay, these other people, I have no idea what they're doing, but um, I have the certainty of knowing what their plan is from the buy side or the buyer says, hey, I understand what the seller is doing because they've got their documents in order. They've done their estate planning. They said their bottom dollar is this. And so it really has a significant impact on success if both sides are prepared for that transaction. Randy? Yeah, absolutely. It all comes down to preparation. And um, I guess the only thing to add to that is um maybe knowing throughout the course of the deal, uh, the items to stay true on and the items to kind of give on. And so a lot of that is kind of in that planning process. You might, you might recognize, Hey, there's going to be some things that are a total give and take. And then there are some things that are neutral to you that are attractive to the buyer that if you give on maybe from a tax perspective, you're really not losing out on all that much. And there are, there are items that are neutral to you. And that might be a negotiating tool. And so to kind of have identified some of those levers in advance lets you be nimble throughout the course of a deal so that you're not constantly going back to the drawing board every time something gets proposed. And so I think just being ready with that planning in advance uh, makes you a more effective negotiator. Preparation, preparation, preparation. Hey, great, great advice. So closing question for all of you, the, the million dollar question, right? And maybe Heidi, I'll ask you first and we'll finish with Spencer. Um, how, do you th- how do you think, you know, based on the backlog you have and the flow in your practices, how do you think values and the demand of acquisitions could, uh, could evolve here in the, in the second half of 2022? We are as busy as we've ever been. I would say we have even greater deal volume now than we did at the uh, second half of 2021 when there was some uncertainty around what was going to happen with the tax laws. And there are really a wide array of uh, different types of transactions and sizes. I see that continuing through 2022. I think 2023 is kind of a question mark on what would happen. But but right now, I think there's still a lot of interest. Everyone knows there's a huge amount of cash on balance sheets to deploy. That's why you see so much more interest. So many PE firms that have never had interest in the space, you'll see them. Infrastructure funds that have never looked at the space that now look at some deals as uh, potential investments. And so I see that continuing uh, at least through the end of 2022. Randy? Yeah, I would agree. I mean, we, we said it previously, but uh, excess capital is driving so much activity right now. People have to put dollars to use. And right now there's just a ton of it. So we, we talked about, is this 2021 craze going to keep going in to spill into 2022? Of course it has. And it's almost like 2021 never stopped. Like the there's been no slowdown whatsoever. And the fact that we've not seen it tap the brakes yet um, makes me think it's going to keep going. There are all of these massive looming issues and it's kind of hard to get your crystal ball out and figure out, okay, a significant increase in interest rates, fuel prices, what's going on in Russia, supply chain issues, all those massive macro things could impact negatively the M&A market. Um, but for the very short term, it seems like uh, we're in a good spot. I just don't know when that slowdown is going to occur. 
like anyone else. Yeah. And I guess, Spencer, your, your closing thoughts on deal flow and, and values. No, I think it's going to be pedal to the metal for the back half of 2022. And, and to Heidi's question, I mean, comment about 2023, I, I think it is a little, um, I'm a little less cavalier about that just because what, you know, just a normalization of the market. I don't think you, it's even, it's not even like a recession, just normalized environment for, to getting deals done. I think what's exciting is that there's never been more interest in transportation and logistics uh, from an investment standpoint. So um, this came up at a recent conference. I think there's going to continue to be record levels for larger type deals that are transformative to the competitive landscape. I think because it has to, there's two it's, that needs to happen. That's good for the, uh, for the industry. I think uh, where you're going to see things slow down a little bit is where you're going to have the combination of aging business owners exiting equipment values, normalizing. um, And then it's just, you know, the, the, the need to go acquire those businesses is less compelling and more expensive than it was uh, in today's environment. So I think that's probably what you're going to see, a tale of two business profiles um, and two M&A markets. I think that's what you'll see in 2023. So messages, keep your boots strapped on. Sounds like we're in for a heck of a run here continuing. Um, I would like to thank each of our panelists. There's a great deal of experience here. Uh, gathered today. I appreciate your time preparing. I appreciate the open sharing of information with our audience. And and I believe that that brings us to a close of today's session. Thank you, everyone.